Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube series SciShow happen. This week, as always, I'm joined by Stefan Chen. Hey. What's your tagline? A muscular crepuscular. <laughs> God, that was terrible. <laughs> Sam Schultz is also here with us today. Sam, describe the perfect date. Oh, God, I haven't been on a date in like 11 years, so... <laughs> Um, it was probably, I must, I mean, it must have been the last date I went on with Rachel. So that was 11 years ago. It must have been perfect. Wow. Look at me now. And what's your tagline, Sam? One year later, and I still think I'd be a great Santa. <laughs> <laughs> Sari Riley is also here to, with us today. Sari, who's the best scientist? Mm. Oh, I don't know. He's fishing for a Hank. He wants you to say Hank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me. The guy who hasn't been inside of a lab except to make a video in 20 years. Can I cop out and say scientists collective are the best scientists? Because I love it. Yes. Mm. I'm against hero narratives right now. That's my thing as yes. far as science communication goes. I'm like, no, no. Talk about all the people who helped or generalize it. Don't mention the one person. There are no individual scientists. We are all science together. And when we tried to be individual scientists, we were alchemists and we sucked at it. Because we were like, don't show anybody your notebooks. Don't peer review anything. Just lie a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> What's your tagline? That's no place for a tree. <laughs> you got a problem with a tree? And I'm Hank Green, and my tagline is oil of vitriol. Every week here on the SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts. We're playing for glory, but we're also keeping score and awarding sandbucks from week to week. We do everything we can to stay on topic, but if you go off on a tangent, which you may very well, if the rest of the team deems your tangent not worthy, we'll force you to give up one of your sandbucks, which I feel like hasn't happened in like four months. Yeah. <laughs> it's the end of the year right now, which means that it is also the end of season two of Tangents. So this month we're celebrating science and friendship and the end of the season with episodes about each of our hosts. The topic for each episode in December will be one of us and everyone will be presenting facts about some of that person's favorite things. And in the last episode of the year, we will announce the season's winner, and the new name for our tangents currency. And as always, we introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem, This Week with Sari. This week's about me, and this poem is too. I should be an expert, so I guess I'll push through. In short bios past, I say I like these. Rain, beagles, cartoons, video games, and green tea. And I guess that's true if I did construe the prompt as my interests in words one or two. But brains are complex, and with all due respect, I'll flex my introspection and really dissect what my favorite things are. Version two. I love stories of weirdos who don't quite fit in, from fossil-gathering maidens to cephalopod skin. I love stories of growth and plants and persistence of Antarctic forests and the mere existence of humans who are so sad and so brave, working together to research and stave off disease and injustice and the unsung work of collectives. Those stories, not one arrogant jerk. I guess what I love most are the strange and the kind, the intersections between art and the mind, the little magics with science at their core. Okay, I'm a softie and just excited to learn more. Oh, so I would beautiful. say the topic for today is Sari, and Sari likes SciShow Tangents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. Uh, so Sari, who are you? <laughs> well, I'm 26. I'm a Gemini. Um, <laughs> and I was going to ask you what your name means. Yeah, mm. it's less fun that I'd have to do it for myself because then I'm not surprised. But my name is Sari, which is short for Saridwin, which, as everyone has told me, is pronounced incorrectly. That's how my parents <laughs> did it. So the etymology of it, it's a Welsh name that's classically pronounced Caridwin. And it is... The name of a sorceress or goddess in Welsh legend. There are two options for the first half of it. The Syrid means bent or Surd means poetry combined with Ven for woman or Gwen for white or fair or blessed. And I got my name because my dad saw a statue of this goddess on the Cornell <laughs> University campus and was like, man, doing my PhD sucks. This statue is mildly comforting. I'm wow. going to name a daughter after it. <laughs> and he imbued you with so much dorky energy. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen this statue in person? When I was a baby, uh, I also helped. My dad, when my dad was a TA, according to legend, a.k.a. his story, I used to eat McDonald's in the back of the class and help run the slide projector. And so, like, I was on campus with him a lot as a, as a baby slash toddler. Mm. But and there's a picture of me with it, but I don't remember it because that's mm -hmm. before, I don't know, memories are lasting. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sari, I'm excited to present some things that you like. M my thing is about some nothing you mentioned. So hopefully you actually <laughs> like this thing. My thing's about one of the things you mentioned before you said you don't like those things anymore. Oh, I like those things still. Okay. That means it's time for... <laughs> 
where I have three science facts to present to each of the rest of y'all, but only one of those facts is real. The rest of you have to figure out either by deduction or wild guess, which is the true fact. If you get it right, you get a sandbuck. If not, then I will get your sandbuck. And my truth or fail fact is about gardens and plants and stuff. Do you like gardens and plants and stuff? I do. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Is that a new like? It's a new like. Yeah, yeah. this is the first apartment, I guess, that I've moved into that actually has a yard and space for a garden. So I spend a lot of time outside. Well, it is the year 2020 where we have to spend a lot of time outside <laughs> in whatever way we can without being near other people. <laughs> Gardening is a great one. Yeah. <laughs> so gardens are good for growing things, vegetables, whatever Sari is working on. But also you can grow a whole botanical garden for people to just come and visit and, and learn things about plants and nature and conservation. Sometimes in that process, botanical gardens get to try out some of the latest, greatest new technologies. And recently at the Atlanta Botanical Gardens, they installed a thing that took inspiration directly from nature, and it is one of these three things. Which one is it? Is it? Number one, the garden strung a cable between two trees and then set a sloth-inspired robot on it, and the robot will crawl across the strings and collect data on environmental conditions like temperature and humidity to help monitor the environment of the, of the place. Uh, and the robot is designed to move very slowly to conserve energy, just like a sloth does as it goes about its day. Also, they they made it resemble a sloth. So they just built it <laughs> so that it will look, look like a sloth so that the kids at the botanical garden will say like, oh, that's cute. Tell me about it. Or is that a lie? And it's fact number two, where uh, the garden deployed a series of tiny inchworm-like devices called hygrobots in their greenhouses. Hygrobots will move around, but only when uh, humidity changes. So when the humidity changes, the device will bend and unbend like an inchworm that will sort of like flop it around the surface of the botanical garden. And the reason that they do this is that they have little test strips that change color when a fungus is detected. And they, this is a fungus that they have to be careful about having inside of the botanical garden. So whenever workers are walking around, they can just sort of like glance and see one of these little bots that's flopping around and see if the fungus has been detected. Or maybe that one's the lie and this <laughs> one's the true one. Fact number three, the garden created a fake garden made up of fake miniature replicas of the garden that the uh, little kids can go climb around on and learn about the different species in the garden and around the world. But they aren't just any fake trees. They're loaded with piezoelectric crystals which create a, an electric charge when mechanical forces are applied. And so as the children climb around on them, uh, that energy is then used to power lights near the mini garden. So all of that happy play gets converted into electricity. Wow. Or maybe that one's the lie. You never know. <laughs> Which one is it? So you either have your sloth-inspired environmental data-gathering robot or fact number two, inchworm-inspired fungus-sensing robots. Or fact number three, replica plants that generate electricity from being played upon. Oh, the sloth one seems like way more trouble than it's worth. Yeah. It doesn't go very far, so it could just be hanging and do the same job, probably. I mean, I guess the string could cross the whole thing, but it does seem more elaborate than necessary. I'm trying to think of like a, a, a employee describing to a visitor what the robot does. And if they were describing it to me at the end of it, I'd be like, oh, OK. And then I'd move on. <laughs> it would be a thing where I would 
be like, oh, thank you so much. And then as soon as I walked away, I would turn to whoever I was at the botanical garden with and be like, I don't understand why they just don't stick it in a tree. Like, that seems like it would be so much better. Yeah. I'll feel really bad if this is the real one. (laughs) But the inchworms seem cute and, and useful. But my issue with that one, people could and would steal them, right? I don't know. I, I, I well, I mean, maybe if they look, they look enough like inchworms, then you don't steal an inchworm. <laughs> True. I suppose not. But also, I feel like botanical gardens have a fairly well-defined path, and then there's always like someone, like a staff member, hiding behind a bush nearby. So if you do something yeah. wrong, they're like, eh. <laughs> That's a good point. I see you. <laughs> and if you have so many of them. You wouldn't be worried about them disappearing. Like, if a kid took one of your worms, you probably wouldn't notice. Yeah, I think the idea behind hygroscopic or, like, these hygrobot type things is that they're really cheap to make. Mm. Oh, okay. They sort of dump them around. And the last one seems too pleasant to be real. (laughs) Just that they would create a play place for kids. Is that what's pleasant about it? I don't know. And that they'd use the energy from their youthful exuberance to power little lights. I guess I just don't really get that one. You want kids to understand that like energy comes from somewhere, right? Yeah. So it's a demonstration more than anything else. Like obviously this isn't saving a tremendous amount Mm, of power. Right. And generally this is the case with piezoelectrics where it's like, this sounds really cool. And then you're like, actually turns out that in order to do any of the useful things that we are all doing right now with power, you need a a lot more than you're going to (laughs) get by jingling a jangle. Like at the mall, you have a kid's play place because you want to leave the kids with the, with one of the parents and the other parent can mm-hmm. go to American Eagle or whatever. At the, <laughs> but at the botanical garden, they could be enthralled by the sloth, the climbing across. Oh, Boy, like there's so much to do. <laughs> they don't need a play place. <laughs> Right. Yeah, Stefan is speaking like a true unowner of a child. <laughs> uh, like, like it's never bad to have some place for them to go. Okay. Uh, turn their energy into a little bit of electricity. Yeah, kids love looking at trees and reading plaques, Stefan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's time to go to twitter.com slash scishowtangents where you can find these three facts and vote on the one that you think is the true fact before we find out what the rest of these clowns thought. Uh, so go vote now. And now, tell me what you think is the true fact. Well, I'm going to go with the sloth because I just don't believe the other two are practical. Oh, okay. I That's can't picture the play place, and I don't. I think the worms would be gone in the, the in a day. <laughs> I'm going to go with the worms because same reasoning. I think the other two are impractical. Uh, <laughs> I like the worms the best. That seems the most realistic to me. I'm waffling between that and the play place, but I'm going to go with the worms. Well, Stefan, it didn't matter either way because both of those were fake. Oh, my oh no. The sloth? <laughs> I can't believe you got it, Sam. I thought I totally had all of you. This is the most boring one, so it's kind yeah. of boring. <laughs> <laughs> so here's why the sloth isn't boring. So they're doing this inside of the botanical garden, but the hope is that they can string even longer ones in the real world. And then you can have this really low power robot that will send you data, not just on like one area of the forest, but around the forest. It's a bit of a uh, a pilot project okay. to do it internally where they can control it and stuff. It's a surprisingly large robot, which makes me think that there's like more going on in it than I would initially think. But I guess they have to have like ways of communicating mm-hmm. the information, batteries to store energy. There's actually just a sloth inside. <laughs> we recently discovered, fairly recently, that like, the slow movement of a sloth is a survival strategy so that they just don't use a lot of energy. And 
that would actually work for a robot as well. Like you just don't move very much and mm-hmm. you don't need as much battery power. You didn't say it had big googly eyes and it had an adorable <laughs> face. It's also solar powered. It's also solar powered. So it has little solar panels on its butt so that it can keep its batteries charged. Wow. What a great robot. Self-sufficient. Well, we've turned all the way around on it now. Everybody except <laughs> Sari thinks it's a great robot. Yeah, it's fine. I think after seeing it, I wouldn't make my catty comment to my botanical yeah. garden walking partner. I'd be like, mm, that's fine. At least they made it cute. Was the worms real in any way? Both of those things are real. So there is a there there are ways to like make things that can sort of like, you know, move around a little bit due to changing humidity. And then also there is test strips for testing fun- fungus in plant populations, which they do need to do in environments like this. Mm-hmm. But you can't it's not just exposure. You have to like grind up leaves and like make them wet and do a whole scientific procedure on them. Okay. You can't just like tap against them and be like, that one's got fungus. Right. That one doesn't. You'd need wet yeah. worm robots. They basically they need to eat up the plant and like ah. pass it through them and test for the fungus, which okay. hey, maybe that's coming. And then uh, there is an example of a piezoelectric playground in, in Belgrade, which is more like an architecture project than a playground. And there are also lots of other sort of like pilot projects in, in piezoelectric stuff that, as I said, it turns out to not produce very much electricity. Could you like put it in a in cement on a street or something and generate tons of electricity? Yeah, it, they're expensive. So per unit of electricity created, you just have to make a lot of them. Well. We'll find some other way to make children useful. (laughs) (laughs) Next up, we're going to take a short break and then it'll be time for the fact off. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, you think you could name them all? And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Factor, whose ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning. Stress is stressful. I don't like it. (laughs) Life just goes and goes, and it doesn't ever stop going. There's always something else to do. And one of those things is a very important thing called eating dinner. To eat dinner, one must pick out what they want to eat and then go to the grocery store and then buy the stuff and then chop the stuff and do other things to the stuff. You have to heat the stuff and put it in water. And then afterwards, you have to 
take the things that you heated it in and they're gross and you have to make them clean again. Meanwhile, life is still happening that all all that's building up around you. Oh, this is like, terrifying. I'm so yeah. I never want to cook again. <laughs> You're right, Factor Ad. I don't. I don't want to have this happen. This is unacceptable. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, parentheses, all the time, uh, you just don't have the time or the energy for meal planning on top of everything else going on in your life. So thankfully, Factor is here to help. Factor's two-minute meals are your secret weapon come mealtime. You can get chef-crafted meals that are better for you and better tasting than takeout delivered right to your door. Ready to heat and ready to eat. No prep, no mess, no sink full of dishes, no stress. We're kicking stress out the door in 2024, and I certainly hope that's true for me. <laughs> Heck yeah, Factor. Kick my stress. Right out the door. <laughs> I'm gonna get a I'm gonna get a chest freezer just for these meals. <laughs> Oh, you're going to need one because they have over 35 meals to choose from. Flexible ordering options, add-ons, smoothies. Factor offers all sorts of fast, simple solutions when you're too busy to cook. Banish your stress, even if it's just for like one hour while you're eating dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash tangents50 and use code tangents50 to get 50% off. That's code tangents50 at factormeals.com slash tangents50 to get 50% off. Welcome back, everybody. Sandbox Total, Sari and Sam are tied with one. I'm in the lead with two, and Stefan is pulling up in the rear with zero. But it's time for Stefan to try to make his comeback, because it's time for the fact off. Two panelists have brought science facts to present to the others in an attempt to blow our minds. And the presentees each have a sandbox to award the fact that we like the most. To decide who's going to go first, we have a trivia question. As we know from her ultimately very popular tweet, Asparapis, <laughs> Sari loves plant puns, apparently. How many plant puns do you love, Sari? Just that one, or are there more? There's an example in this question that I, I would not call myself a plant pun lover, but according to my tattoo, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there is a tattoo of a fig. It's labeled fig one because it's a figure of a fig. So that is another good plant pun, and if you tattooed it, it's pretty you've kind of got yourself stuck with this i'm sorry mm -hmm. and sari loves to garden and the fig is one of the earliest known instances of agriculture mm. by how many years do scientists believe that fig crops predate those of wheat and rye oh no Ten thousand. <laughs> oh. <laughs> why not Fruit seems easier to grow than a wheat to me, maybe. You wouldn't even look at a wheat and think, I'm going to try to grow that. So <laughs> That's true. You just like look at some grass and you're like, that is not food. And you look at a fig and you're like, yeah, mm. I see that. That's food. Yum, yum. <laughs> I will say more like, God, maybe it's even longer than that. No, <laughs> I'll say 5,000 years. <laughs> I don't know. It was 1,000 oh. years. Not that far. But look, agriculture. That's a long time. A thousand years ago, what did we have? What was going on in 1020? Uh, they didn't have blue jeans, I'll tell you that. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> Definitely true. <laughs> Stefan, you go first. All right. So one of the mysteries of the brain is how we categorize visual information and why it appears in the same place in everyone's brain, just like why brain regions stay pretty consistent. And so my first intuition on that would be that the brain learns sort of like a neural network would, like you have these, you see things, and based on the physical features of the things that you see, 
you like you see enough trees and then you learn what a tree looks like and that's how you figure it out. But the leading theory is something called eccentricity bias. And it's basically when your brain is developing, when you're very young, the wiring in the visual cortex is more influenced by where the object appears in your visual field. So whether it's like more centrally located or if it appears more in the peripheral and sort of how much of the visual field it takes up. Normally to test between these theories, you'd you'd take young children, or I know they've also done this with monkeys, and you teach them to recognize new categories of objects and see how their brains react. But it's super important when you're doing that to keep the way that the images are presented very consistent so that they're taking up the same part of the visual field, they're about the same size, and you have to repeat the exposure a lot to get the brain to actually respond during development. So one researcher was thinking about this and realized that his lifelong experience playing Pokemon might offer the perfect experimental condition for this. Because people who started playing Pokemon in the 90s with the like the red and the blue games, like everyone's playing on the Game Boy. So they're all looking at a small screen that you're holding about a foot away from your face. And then and everyone's looking at these little black and white creatures and learning to differentiate them. And so you have a really like repeatable experience. And now all these people are adults and you can test their brains. And and for like hardcore players, you get a lot of the repeated exposure that you need. So they recruited 11 people who had played a bunch as a child starting from age five to eight. And then also they still played as an adult, I think. And then 11 people who had never played the game. And they put them in fMRI scanners as they were showing them groups of images from different categories. So like faces, words, Pokemon, and hallways. And (laughs) (laughs) The four classic objects. The four (laughs) big categories of things. (laughs) Um, So not surprisingly, in the Pokemon players, there was a brain region that responded much more strongly to Pokemon than any of the other image categories. And that preference did not show up in the non-players and that the brain region is the occipitotemporal sulcus and in the non-players it instead was responding to animals cartoons or words which sort of makes sense like there's there's some overlap there pokemon Mm -hmm. or cartoon animals that say words yeah that say words i get yeah they don't look like words though but you know some do (laughs) do they (laughs) yeah yeah there's a pokemon that looks like everything unknown I like little letters. Oh, yeah. So shove it up your ass, Devin. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm not one of these experts. I wouldn't have qualified. So this brain region is part of a larger region called the ventral temporal cortex, which is thought to be responsible for visual categorization. And the they found that the Pokemon region was closer to the one that lights up for faces, which are we because we are social, focus on faces a lot. Those also tend to be centrally located in our visual field. And that region is further from the one that it distinguishes hallways, which we have a region for hallways, apparently. And uh, <laughs> But we normally aren't like focusing on the hallway. We take that in more peripherally. This seems to, it's like another piece of evidence that seems to validate the current leading hypothesis that the placement in the visual field is very important to how our visual cortex develops and and learns to categorize information. And it also teaches us that even though like most of this wiring happens when we're infants, you can still impact it much later by having extensive visual experience Mm -hmm. with a particular thing. But they also pointed out that 
you shouldn't be worried if your children are playing a lot of Pokemon or I guess other video games because all the all the people they recruited as the Pokemon experts, they all have PhDs. So they're all doing wow. okay. <laughs> <laughs> of course. There we are. Always testing the same population of people over and over again. <laughs> this is the problem with a lot of psychology studies. So I like this because it explains a thing that I experience, which is that when I first start looking at something like, say, the first time I was like, I'm going to do a little bird watching. Initially, like it's telling one bird from another is like, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And then slowly it's like my brain starts to like create new like ways of categorizing things. And, and then I can like, how did I ever get those two things mixed up? Same thing with like the voices of McElroy brothers. Where, like, <laughs> once upon a time, I couldn't even tell Griffin and Justin apart. And now I, I can't imagine a world in which I don't understand the difference between Justin and Travis. And they actually sound quite similar. <laughs> I also love that like the brain is like, well, we're going to have to use one of the areas of the, of the brain for this. Which is it? Uh, the one that's good for cartoons and animals. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, this is an old study from 2005, I think, but they did research that was like looking at how we have single neurons in our brains that get very specifically associated with like people that we encounter frequently. In this study, I think they were studying, like they were looking at people who were fans of the show, The Friends. <laughs> the, the Friends. The Friends. The show about The Friends, you know. You know the, the, the show about The Friends called <laughs> Friends, I think. Uh, but uh, I want to, I want to know more about the show, The Friends. <laughs> yeah, it's got, yeah. it's got Rass and Rachel. <laughs> They love each other. We were on a bork. <laughs> well, this has gone Don't off the rails. Not. But in that study, they were looking at uh, neurons that fired for these people that were all like, in, I think it was the same neuron in all these people that was associated with Jennifer Aniston. Mm -hmm. um, and in one person, it fired for Lisa Kudrow also. But. Wow, everybody had a Jennifer Aniston Yeah, neuron. I certainly don't. I don't think I could tell you what Jennifer Aniston looked like. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I, I, I want to be friends with the person whose Jennifer Aniston neuron is Lisa Kudrow. That person <laughs> yeah. seems cool to me. I like them. Maybe it's Jennifer Aniston. She can't have her Ooh. own. Okay, we got to move on because okay. Sam also has a science fact. Uh, it's always <laughs> bad when you have a raucous time with the first one. And then, yeah, I have to go. Okay, well, anyway, here I go. As climate change continues to worsen and polar bear populations shrink, it becomes increasingly important to develop breeding programs for polar bears in captivity. But there is a pretty big problem with that, and that's that polar bears, much like pandas, are very awful at captive breeding for a whole ton of reasons. So one reason is that polar bears mate in the spring, but they delay their pregnancy and they don't start gestation until they go into hibernation four to seven months later. Another problem is that since gestation takes place during hibernation, zoos with possibly pregnant polar bears have to spend a ton of money to provide a ton of specialized care, including complete isolation for the polar bear and constant monitoring to give it 
any potential pregnancy the best possible chance of success. The third issue, and one that pandas also have, is that polar bears that have mated will exhibit signs of pregnancy like weight gain and increased hormone levels even if they aren't pregnant, which is known as pseudopregnancy. So the increase in hormones, and this is the key thing, during this period makes it basically impossible to perform an accurate non-invasive pregnancy test. Uh, You can apparently form an invasive pregnancy test in the form of an ultrasound on a polar bear, but they have really small uteruses and they hate being touched. Mm. So it doesn't seem like people do it often. So basically, what the end result of this is that you're waiting around for months every time your polar bears mate, giving it specialized care with no idea if it worked, not to mention that to even get polar bears to mate in the first place, you probably had to ship your polar bear off somewhere or ship a polar bear to you to mate. And if they're pregnant, most likely you're just going to end up with two cubs after all of that work. So it's not a very streamlined process. But there is one, and this is the Sari interest part, non-traditional, highly accurate tests developed in 2013 that zoos have begun turning to in order to figure out if their bears are pregnant, a beagle named Elvis. Researchers at the Cincinnati Zoo's Center for Conservation and Research of Endangered Wildlife trained Elvis using poop samples from bears that they knew had had been pregnant and had babies, uh, and then those that had had pseudo-pregnancies, and after a few months, he was identifying polar bear pregnancies with 97% accuracy. So the next year, 2014, the zoo began taking new samples from potentially pregnant bears, and his success rate, as far as I could tell, stayed the same. He can only detect pregnancies that are pretty far along, so researchers are trying to narrow down exactly what hormone or blend of hormones he's smelling so they can turn it into a test that they can do sooner because even after all these years it seems like they have no idea what he's smelling in this poop that lets them know if the polar bear is coming. I love it! So do you have to ship your poop off to Elvis? <laughs> yeah, you have to you have to freeze dry it and ship it to the Cincinnati uh, Zoo. And and they just decided to train this dog because like we know how to train dogs to sniff for stuff. I think somebody yeah, somebody at the zoo was thinking about bomb sniffing dogs and then they thought, <laughs> eh, maybe we could try this out. There were other dogs they tried to train, but they all scrubbed out. Only Elvis oh. made it. How did they get enough samples of pregnant polar bear poop for <laughs> Elvis to be trained if it's so rare? I don't know for sure, but I would guess because they've been trying to figure out a polar bear pregnancy test for so long, they have like a pretty they just had them around. <laughs> yeah. A catalog yeah. of pregnant polar bears to see if they could identify what could help you figure it out faster. All right. I love both of these facts, and I don't know which one to pick. <laughs> Me neither. They're both so good. Uh, you did so good they are for both me. Very good. <laughs> I'm so giddy by both of these facts. Three, two, one, step. Sam. Oh. oh. I actually hadn't decided until I said it. <laughs> it's I, the brain, man. I feel like my brain is alive in a way that I am not. My consciousness and my brain feel so separate to me, and that. And I'm just like, you're just doing this thing all on your own, and I do not have any control over you. I don't have that thought about my brain i think about that with my the skin cells on my arm for some reason because i can (laughs) see my arms all the time and i'm like you know those are completely different skin cells than they were like i don't know two weeks ago i just saw a picture of me from like six or seven years ago and uh i had the thought i still have those underwear but i do not have that body anymore (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Did your Hank Green neuron categorize it correctly? <laughs> Younger me. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, that means that it's time to ask the science couch. So we've got a listener question for our couch of finely honed scientific minds. This is one that is from at Frog by the Bog. 
And they, the frog by the bog asks Sari to invent a new organ for humans. <laughs> they demand it. Like. Yeah, not even an ass. <laughs> but I took I took this challenge to heart. The heart is an organ, for example. Um, <laughs> but an organ, just so we're all on the same page, is a group of specialized tissues that performs a specific function for the organism. So, like a sea sponge doesn't have tissues or organs. It's just like generalized cells that can respond to physical stimuli, but there aren't like eyes or ears or a brain or a digestive tract. And the hydra is like slightly more complicated. It has an endoderm and an ectoderm. So like two layers of tissue, but it doesn't have organ level specialization. But like our organs are like the heart and the brain and the lungs, et cetera. Plants have like their roots and leaves are organs. So things like that. Oh, I never thought about plant organs. I didn't either. And so here are some of my rejected organs. Hair follicles, but they photosynthesize. So they're useful. I call it leaf hair. (laughs) (laughs) A gizzard for extra food when you want another piece of cake and don't want anyone else in your family to have it, but you are too full to eat it. (laughs) And so you can just like, like a bird, save that food for later. Skin too. It has a lot of melanocytes, kind of like those radiation-resistant mushrooms, so that we're radiation-resistant. So those were my rejected ideas. And so what I would like to propose is an organ that's kind of like tucked between your lungs that basically functions as an internal oxygen tank where blood flows through it regularly. And the key, the new protein called either ultraglobin, omniglobin, or vitaglobin. Ooh, that kicks in in near-death situations when you need oxygen to sustain your brain. So you just have this yeah. like organ that has a lot of bound oxygen that you accumulate over your life. You can't have a bunch of near-death experiences in a row. But when you really, in, like if you just yeah. swim a little bit too deep and need a burst of oxygen, or if you are like lightheaded or whatever, mm-hmm. I don't know, you like hyperventilate a little bit, then your body's like, oh, all right, we've got it. This organ's got it. That seems really useful. Because, like, when you go into, like, fight or flight, too, like, you'd get a yeah. dump of adrenaline or whatever, you could probably use some extra oxygen in that moment, too, and, like, you know, run away from the yeah. tiger. It's like Nas in uh, Fast and the Furious. <laughs> you, like, push yeah. the button on your body, <laughs> and you like can run, like, three bench. times faster. <laughs> well, don't hit it too early, though. Rookie mistake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Sari is either definitely in charge or definitely not in charge of like germline engineering. We, like mm-hmm. we're learning to either to either give you power or to never give you power. Yeah. I don't know which one it would be either. If you want to ask the science couch your question, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShow Tangents, where we'll tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you to the busy little bee and Melody Rainpod and everybody else who tweeted us your questions for this episode. We've got a tie for this episode. It's me and Sam coming in with two points and Sari right. and Stefan with one each, which means that headed into the final stretch, Stefan is still substantially ahead with only Sari in striking distance, but it's going to be a difficult challenge for you to get there. Stefan has to basically get no points for the rest of the season. I might have to lose points. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you'd have to tangent some. If you like the show and you want to help us out, it's very easy to do that. You can leave us a review wherever you listen. That helps us know what you like about the show, and also other people get to find out what you like about the show. Second, you can tweet out your favorite moment from the episode, and finally, to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell, tell people, people about us. us! Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Stefan Chin. And I've been Sam Schultz. 
SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and Sam Schultz, who edits a lot of these episodes along with Hiroko Matsushima. Our social media organizer is Paolo Garcia Prieto. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravarti. Our sound design is by Joseph Tunamedish, and we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you, and remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. When it comes to bleaching and dyeing hair, we've turned to all sorts of chemicals over the years. Fortunately, we've come a long way from the ancient Romans. So we found oh many recipes for hair dyes in Roman ruins. And they've told us that ancient Romans would sit out in the sun after coating their hair with various lifting agents to, to bleach their hair, basically. And those lifting mm-hmm. agents include things that are pleasant, like white wine and honey. But they also include things that are not so pleasant, like a blend of sulfur, quicklime, and pigeon poop that uh, could potentially give you really bad chemical burns or just poison you to death if you had it too long or on incorrectly. But did it make their hair? Did it bleach their hair? Yeah, I'm sure it worked. Probably worked great. I don't know. Sari, would that work, you think? I don't know. Probably. quicklimed your hair? I have not quicklimed my hair. I've bleached my hair, and I thought I was dying for a little bit. I was like, is my scalp going to burn off? (laughs) Uh, Because it's like a very weird tingly hot feeling very exothermic reaction Mm. so i could believe it but i could also i i stuck with it for fashion uh (laughs) so i could see the ancient romans doing that too